welcome to the BVB London Fan Club podcast, episode number eight, how time flies when we're having fun. Um, this evening, we're going to be looking at uh, supporters' involvement in saving their football club, uh, something that's very dear to the hearts of the BVB fans around the world. Um, we've also got two special guests uh, who've been involved in um, saving a football club based here in the UK. Um, first of all, we have um, Ian McInnes, who is the um, chairman and owner of Gosport Borough of the Southern League and the former chairman of Portsmouth. Good evening, Ian. Good evening to you. Thanks My for joining pleasure. us this evening. My pleasure. Uh, we also have with us uh, Colin Farmery, who's a 50-year um, veteran fan of Portsmouth, um, also a writer and photographer um, who's had um, work published in the national press. Um, and has written books about Portsmouth, um, but he's also at Go uh, Gosport Borough as well now. Good evening, Colin. Yeah, good Abend. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks for joining us. And as always, um, our co-host and president of the BVB London Fan Club and fountain of knowledge on all things BVB, Mr. Ben McFadden. Good evening, Ben. Hi, guys. How are you all doing? Thanks a lot, Mark. Yeah, we're all good here. We're fine, thank you. Excellent. Good what stuff. are you up to, Mark? Uh, the past week, um, I've been doing some voluntary work in the, the local community shop. Um, so that's been good fun and, um, and helping out some of the folks here locally. And um, my youngest has actually gone back to school this week. So that's been a little bit of a change for us. Um, but aside from that, um, yeah, just trying to keep up to speed with, um, with the football that is taking place, obviously, in the Bundesliga and, um, and all the news that's floating around and the sort of restarting of football um, here in the UK as well. So... Um, as I've mentioned before, we're now going to be um, focusing on our um, two special guests this evening. Um, they're both involved in football, um, now at Gosport Borough, um, but previously um, at Portsmouth. Um, first of all, if I could come to, to Ian. Ian, I know that um, your background has very much been um, in electronics, actually, and um, yes, I'm fascinated yes. to know how, how you got involved in football in the first place and, um, and how did you get involved with Portsmouth? Well, a long time before I got involved in electronics. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, my I, I I actually first went to Fratton Park to watch Portsmouth play. I can I can't remember, but I was told 1959. Wow! Uh, but taken by my grandfather, who'd been watching them since the twenties. Uh, I had a number of members of the family playing for Portsmouth. I actually played myself for the youth team for about half a season, as we said earlier, including one game against um, against Jewelsburg the town that we're, we're, uh, we're twinned with. And, and so my football came very much before electronics. Um, my electronics uh, involvement came around about uh, the early 80s, I suppose. And uh, just to put some uh, kind of a, a German slant on it, one of the first franchises that I took for the business that I ran was actually Siemens, um, and who then had a, had a headquarters in, uh, in Sunbury, in Surrey. So... Uh, so football, since I was a kid, and, uh, you know, football and electronics now that I'm uh, approaching 70 years of age. Um, football's a lot more enjoyable. <laughs> um, <laughs> electronics, not so much, but I couldn't have done some of the things that I've done in football without the electronics companies being successful. So there's the link. Yeah, sure. Fantastic. And um, so what position did you play out of interest? I used to play in the days that you could, centre half and centre forward. Um, okay. Um, because I'm, I'm just under five foot eleven, so you wouldn't get a chance of playing in those positions today. But I mean, I was a ball playing centre half, obviously, in, in, in you know, as all, in the libero class. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, but then, if we happened to be one nil down, or the or the other centre half was kicking seven bells out the forwards that were playing for us, then they would send me up to give him some of his own medicine, uh, which I did on, on a number of occasions. And I think my whole career, I actually managed to score eight goals. So there, there was some there was some uh, there was some rationale behind doing it. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, there's. Um, I think defenders have a real, um, a real love of getting up there and scoring um, goals themselves, and um, they probably um, like to then go back and boast to the forwards how they could easily play in their position. It's so easy, but until you put one in your own net, then all of a sudden, not quite so much, right? <laughs> That's it, exactly. And um, 
And Colin, how about yourself? I mean, did you did you play as a younger chap? Uh, I, I pl- only ever played Sunday League because, because in actual fact, I've been I've been a Pompey fan since I was seven years old. My first game was in 1970, and uh, and I took the decision in my twenties to prioritise watching Pompey on a Saturday rather than playing football. So, so I, pl- I played Sunday League for many years. Uh, you know, I I, I, I was I was a, a striker. I, I I honed my goal hanging instincts, and uh, mainly, I probably managed to knock out about seventy or eighty goals in in, in Sunday League over about ten seasons. So sort of like a Gerd Muller then, really. Yeah, Gerd Muller. <laughs> yeah, quite absolutely. Yeah, I've got I've got the same swarthy dark looks, but it was it was yeah, no, it was it was a, it was a, it was a yeah. I I I preferred watching to playing. I have to say so. So I spent I spent my sort of like you know teens and twenties watching Pompey play up and down the country in the late 1970s and 1980s and uh you know I, I, i've been a been a pompey fan all my life fantastic and now the two of you obviously um together at uh, at gospel borough um how, how are you finding things there and um and how long have you been at Gosport now well of course we were both we, we both met almost for the first mm-hmm. time when we got involved in the takeover at portsmouth um, and of course, it, it was a takeover that lasted something like about four and a half years, I think, from memory. But of course, the winning of the of the takeover went on for a, uh, an eighteen month period before that. So Colin uh, was very much the guy that used to follow me around, saying what Mister McInnes meant to say, because I was often saying the wrong things in the wrong places. And we became very close friends. Um, and then when we we left the football club um, in a, in, a, in a capacity rather than supporters, of course we've never left Portsmouth as a supporter. Then mm-hmm. eventually, after a period of time, when Colin decided that uh, he wanted to do something else outside the Portsmouth Football Club, um, I managed and very fortunately to get him to come and join me over here at Gospel. And, and, and ironically, both Colin and his wife uh, steeped in Gospel history because they were both the. Uh, the principal and the, the vice principal of the local St. Vincent's College for over 20 odd years, I remember. Yeah, yeah. no, that's it. No, I've, I've got very strong family connections with Gosport. My, uh, my, my, my mum was brought up in Gosport and my, my, my auntie and uncles, they were, they were brought up in Gosport. I've still got kind of cousins in the town as well. And we, you know, my wife and I, we taught in the town for 25 years. So, so I've got, I've got very strong affection for Gosport. They've always been my, my second team in England for sure. And my first game at Gosport Borough was in 1975, which was, you know, five years after my first Pompey game. So since, since, since I was a kid, I've been, I've been supporting Pompey and Gosport Borough. So the chance to, to join Ian at Gosport and, and, and put something back into football. Yeah, I'm here in an unpaid capacity, but a professional capacity um, was, was, was a, an opportunity that was too good to turn wrapped down, really. So, so uh, we're, we're, we're having a, a lot of fun with it, Ian, in one way, one way or another, aren't we? That's one word for it. <laughs> Fantastic. So, how how are, how are Gosport doing at the moment? I mean, um, I, I suppose on both on and off the pitch, are they? Um, you know, it, it's quite worrying times as as we've all mentioned already for yeah. teams, um, etc. Outside of the top top leagues, particularly. But um, and you know, how, how do things sit with Gosport in terms of that? Well, you know, it, this was a second rescue um, that I performed in in a short period of time, really, because Portsmouth was first, and the Gosport was literally about to go out of business when I got talked into taking it over about three years ago now. Uh, and so we've steadied the ship. We, we, we avoided relegation twice in two seasons. This season on the field, we were doing much better. We were in with an outside chance of the playoffs and financially, uh, you know, we're in good shape. But then our season all of a sudden uh, got hit by this magic word when they could make up their mind. We were expunged. How about that? Expunged. Mm. Ever heard that before? Mm. So our season was expunged on March the 10th. Yeah with us about four points, five points outside playoffs with about nine games to play. Um, and then we found ourselves, like the rest of football, saying, thinking, well, what the hell happens next? And, and at the moment, we're sitting here waiting to say, what the hell happens next? Mm. Um, the, 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 the upside of that, you know, every crowd has a silver lining, is that we've since, of course, been involved in a well-publicised um, serving the community in terms of food. I mean, schools, local um, rest homes, uh, a couple of veterans' homes and a, a number of personal um, uh, families. We're now involved, engaged in, a, in an enormous um, charitable food program, uh, which which is which has also probably been a, a blessing for the football club going forward. In so much as that we're a real community club now, perhaps in the way we weren't before. So although we're we're concerned, although we're obviously keen to start playing football again, 
we're more observant of the fact that we've got this crisis that has to be dealt with. And community football clubs should do exactly what we're doing, become a community. And Colin's been very important in that role. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's, been, it's been a privilege to be involved in it, to be honest, because I think, I think you know, we, as Ian said, we, we appointed our clubhouse, new clubhouse manager on the, on the 18th of March, and suddenly that guy, he had, he had no bookings anymore in his clubhouse and no football matches on a Saturday. So we sat down with, uh, with, with Keith, our, our new clubhouse manager, Ian and I, and said, well, well what are we going to do? And, and we came up with this idea that, well, there were going to be families in Gosport that were going to need to be fed. And, and we created a, a, a scheme called Feed, Feed a Family with the Borough. And, and it's gone from strength to strength. And Keith, I think in this last week, we delivered food parcels to getting on for 150 families in the town. And he's got uh, um, 25 volunteers who are coming in every day, pa- packaging, packaging up all, all, all the food and then getting it out and delivered with, with getting deliveries of food from kind of like from supermarkets. And, and, and we've also did a, a very successful crowdfunding campaign that's raised over £7,000 as well to help fund the operation. So as Ian says, it really has made us into a, you know, a community asset. And if you're going to be a successful community football club going forward, that's where you want to be positioned. So we're hoping in the, in the medium to long terms, there will be, be kind of benefits for the football club we can hopefully increase our, we, you know, we've increased our profile in the town, but now what we hope to do is to hopefully increase the number of people who come and watch us play, play at Privet Park. Absolutely right. And uh, that's exactly the kind of community spirit that's so um, strong at Borussia Dortmund. And that's one of the reasons why um, people like me, but also Mark and other members are so active and involved with this football club and keen to promote the club and talk about it and and share the good message, really, that, um, you know, there is a way of uh, managing football um, and uh, really maintaining those kind of roots and so on. But um, could you tell us a bit about um, essentially... Portsmouth. A lot of the people who'll be listening will be German fans and won't know a lot about Portsmouth. I am. I'm currently um, doing a postgraduate degree at uh, Portsmouth University, so I'm very lucky to be able to uh, come down and, and watch uh, um, uh, Portsmouth at uh, at Fratton Park, but also at, at uh, uh, Gosport a few times as well. As I said, you've got a lovely bar there right next pitch side, which is amazing. Uh, you know, you get that VIP feeling. Uh, uh, and, and, and without the VIP price tag, I think I paid four pounds to get in or five pounds, which is very, very reasonable. And as a student, I only pay um, 15 pounds to get into uh, a League One game, which in Dortmund, I have to say, does buy you Champions League. However, um, they do seem to manage things quite differently. But tell us about, um, tell us, you've been following Portsmouth for a long time. Essentially, what what is, what is Portsmouth Football Club and... Um, you know what? Um, where did where did they kind of where did they start and 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 where have they ended up basically? I mean, take us kind of up from you know from from its early roots to uh, just just skim over the history a bit with some of the highlights and then essentially to um, that episode uh, in the Premier League. Um, I understand they've played forty six seasons um, in total in the in the top tier of English football, which is pretty impressive for. Collins is the historian, so I'll let him start. Yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, one of my other roles <laughs> that I do, I actually chair something called the Pompey History Society, which is a charitable organisation that is that is about preserving the archive of Ports and Football Club. And we are we are the most successful football club in the south of England by some considerable distance. I mean, fans in Germany may be aware that Bournemouth, Brighton, and Southampton are in the Premier League at the moment, but at Portsmouth we were twice winners of the of the league championship in 1949 and 1950. We were champions of England, possibly the best team in Europe at that, at that particular time. Uh, we were FA Cup winners in 1939, but more recently, you know, we were winners of the FA Cup in 2008 when Carnu scored the winning goal for us against Cardiff City. And we were finalists in 2010 on, in the season that we were relegated from the Premier League. So, so Portsmouth is, is a very famous English football club. We played in the, um, in the UEFA Cup. We played a game at Wolfsburg in, in, in uh, 2008. So, so we, we We've got a we've got a pedigree of European football. We've got a pedigree of being champions of England. We've got a pedigree of being of being FA Cup winners, and 
we might have been fallen on hard times because in, in, in the late 2000s, we did have 2010s, we did have uh, owners who didn't have the best interests of the football club at heart, which is where kind of like Ian and I got together along with a load of other people to, 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 to create the, the, yeah, the community bit that eventually saved the club. And I think Ian, Ian is very well placed to talk about that. Can you um, can you talk us? Uh, I mean, essentially, um, that, thank you for that, Colin. Um, can you talk us essentially about what uh, sort of just talk us through essentially what happened? Um, so, um, when did Portsmouth FC get promoted to the Premier League? Um, and um, essentially, um, when? When did all the, the rot set in, essentially, of the different owners? I mean, we've got various different owners um, that, that took over over different periods. And perhaps you could, as a historian, you could, uh, football historian, you could, I've, I've seen some of your books that you've written, particularly about um, Portsmouth and Southampton and so on, which is a very strong rivalry. Southampton being another very strong South Coast team. Um, well, I, I wouldn't say they're a very strong South Coast team. They're a South Coast team for sure. But uh, yeah, no, but well, seriously, <laughs> seriously <laughs> I, I think, I think yeah, to answer your question, I mean, Portsmouth were promoted to the Premier League in 2003. Um, and we were managed at the time by Harry Redknapp. And our, our owner and chairman was a guy called Milan Mandrik, who, who, who was a, a, very, a very honest owner. And I think at the end of the day, you know, I think that, that, that's an important thing to say about him um but he sold the club in 2006 to a guy called uh, sasha guidemack and uh sasha guidemack's father arcady was involved in a number of, of dodgy dealings here there and everywhere he was involved in diamond mines in angola he was he was uh, uh involved in israeli politics which is oh. where, where where they where they you know angels fear to tread and he was also uh, allegedly a gun runner as well so so at the end of the day i think the money that had come into portsmouth you know uh, you know sasha guidemack will argue till he's blue in the face opposite but i think we were we were a little bit of a money laundering operation if i'm absolutely honest and as a result the problem came that when the global financial crisis came and when the guidemack family had a number of financial problems in 2008 it, it was very difficult to find an honest buyer for the club. In the end, whenever anybody looked under the bonnet at Portsmouth, all they could see was a whole load of problems there. So we ended up being handed on to um, the fake shake that never existed. Uh, we, 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 were owned, we were owned by the only shake that didn't have any money. We were owned then by a, a El, Russian. El Mirage. Uh, El Mirage or Al Farage, as he was known. And we then ended up on the Never Never owned by a guy called Antonov, who was a Russian owner of a Lithuanian bank, who within six months was 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 suddenly strike a car. Yeah, kind of. He was he was actually um, um, in in court because he he he, he um, had embezzled the bank out of some money. So we 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 were struggling with our owners to have people who really had the interest of the football club at heart, and I think. As supporters, certainly I was involved on the on the political side with the supporters trying to engage fans to 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 be more active in their football club. And the Pompey Supporters Trust was formed in two thousand and nine. Uh, and eventually, by the time we got to two thousand and twelve, the club was was on the brink of relegation to the third division. At that point, the supporters trust teamed up with people like Ian, who were perhaps fans who had had, had more uh, significant individual amounts of, of, of kind of money to potentially invest in the club, to come up with this idea of a community bid where, where we pooled our resources, but in the end it was going to be supporters, whether they were individual supporters or, or more wealthy individual supporters, coming together to actually create, create a project which would, which would cut Cut the link with the past. That's what we needed to do, Ian, wasn't it, really? Completely. I mean, Colin, I'm glad he talk, talked you through that because it's actually a programme in itself and, and one that probably we'd bore your supporters to death with. Um, crooks. I mean, that's a, that's a simple thing. Crooks. Uh, crooks uh, were in control of the football club for a whole period of time. Uh, Sasha Gardamack's father, Arcady Gardamack, uh, applied to be the, um, the, the mayor of Tel Aviv, I believe it was. And had to fill in a form to talk about his assets and said that one of his assets was a premiership football club, 
probably terribly difficult even for the Israelis to work out which club that might be, given his son had the same name. Um, but after that, it went into it went into um, and it went into the, 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 the Alibaba and the Forty Thieves. I mean, the name Balram Chanrai, who was the guy that we actually ended up doing the deal with via the courts, was involved on several occasions, and the and the um, relationship between him and Arkady Gaidamak, uh, you know, is is is, is fraught with uh, difficulty of understanding. In fact, we've had private investigators since try and track down what actually went on. And I still think they came to a, a conclusion that was which, which left us all confused. I mean, the important thing is it, it was a club that had had um, success beyond its beyond its capability for a period of time. People, fans of my age, you know, then I was in my what, late fifties, early sixties, thought, well, this is a way to get the glory back that I saw that little of, but some of, but my parents before me and their, my grandparents before them uh, talked about the great sides of the fifties and the sixties, and great sides they were. Um, and so nobody asked questions when the success, but unfortunately our success came at one hell of a price. And on more than one occasion, the company went into administration. On more than one occasion, they tried to apply the, the same appoint the same administrator, who was actually working for the owners that had taken the club into uh, real issues in the first place. And we even had to hold a court case to get our own administrator installed, a guy called Trevor Birch, who was brilliant for the club, before we could mount a bid. The bid came from. Uh, about seven or eight, um, they, they, they called us high net worths. My wife uses the W word for a different reason, which I can't repeat on the radio. Um, but, but effectively, what we had to do is we had to come up with hundreds of thousands of pounds, if not millions in the end. In fact, it was millions in the end. Whereas the, whereas the very, very loyal supporters at Portsmouth, which is not a wealthy city by any stretch of the imagination, were themselves busy going about doing car washes and street raffles and all the kind of things that go with it to raise money. They eventually ended up with raising over two and a half million quid from the pennies and the pounds, and, and all those pennies and pounds were as important as our tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of pounds. About maybe eight, nine, or ten, maybe so-called presidents at that point in time. We formed an alliance. The presidents took on the responsibility of funding a legal battle, which got to seven hundred thousand pounds before it had any chance of success. So that money was speculated. By the time we had, we got we won the court case to buy the football club. We paid Gardamac an unspecified amount. We're still to this day not allowed to mention what it was, but it was somewhere between four and six million. And uh, and uh, yeah, we won we won only ship the football club. I mean, it was an incredible feat. I mean, I'd say that hadn't been part of it, but not the only part of it. I, it, it it's a it's a wonderful thing to have experienced. It was a troublesome thing to experience. I had some real personal trauma along the way, I can tell you. Um, but it ended up being a club that completely distanced itself from all that you know, shrubbery, all that underhandedness, all these foreign names coming to a place like Portsmouth and set herself off on a new course. And, uh, you know, that, that that's something that I think both Colin and I will go to our grave being happy we were part of. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, because I ended up working for, for the football club as it, as it was a community club. And I think for me, almost, yes, it was a fantastic achievement to have bought the club and, and saved the club, but almost to actually keep our fans on side for four seasons while we were in the fourth division, and keep them engaged in the project and understanding what the project about, I think was almost as big an achievement, Ian, in that sense. And I think the fact that we ended up, you know, almost our final act as a community-owned club was when we won the League Two Championship on the final day of the season, having only been on the top of the table for the last 20 minutes of the season. Yeah. It was a fitting end community ownership because what we'd done is we'd, we'd taken our football club, we'd saved our football club, but then we'd actually moved our football club into, into a space where the former CEO of the Disney Corporation saw it as a great asset that he could, he could come in and, and, and try to buy. And I think you know, the fact is that when we as a community-owned football club sold Ports and Football Club, we could actually get a high-caliber owner wanting to buy it. When Sasha Geidemack was trying to sell the football club, all he could get was fly-by-night people who were of the same ilk as him. So I think that was that was almost, for me, the biggest triumph of community ownership was actually we kept our fans on side for the for the whole duration of the project. And and you know what? From 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 you know the level of knowledge I have of, of the club we're talking about today, Borussia Dortmund, I think that that's a journey that your fans would have actually stuck to as well. I think it's something that they would have very much bought into. The, 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 if, if you like, the debating point here, really, which is, I guess, is something we'll get on to, 
is that we came to a point um, where probably the option to go further, not completely, because I think that we'd have still been to the, there today as, 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 a, as a, a supporter-owned club, as it were. But I think that what happened then is that our only option in the UK at that point is to find somebody um, of, the, of the like of the owner that's in place at this moment in time, who's a decent man, um, as opposed to saying, how do we then turn that ownership at that level into something far greater by expanding the ownership amongst a, a, a greater number of people? And I think that's what German football has tended to do over the period of time rather well. And it's something which I'm sure that we, we can talk about that isn't really, um, isn't really a natural progress path for any club that wants to emulate Portsmouth in the future here. And interesting, talking about Milan Mandaric, he's certainly someone, as you said, has had quite a lot of influence in football. He's been the owner of uh, Lucien Favre's former coach of Dortmund, uh, former team uh, Nice. Uh, he's also currently, he was at Leicester City and he's also currently with Sheffield Wednesday and so on. Although it's the other Sheffield team that under Saudi Arabian owners are doing considerably better at the moment, the Blades. But um, essentially, um, can I just ask, I mean, uh, who who owned, I'm sorry to kind of ask a, a difficult question, but how was Portsmouth owned before Mandarich came in? Because it's not too long ago. People often say that the, what they like at the Bundesliga is that it's um it's a bit like English football in the eighties, but without the um the you know sort of hooligan element, uh, you know, in terms of the atmosphere, the passion, the prices and so on, and the beer in the grounds and the standing and safe standing and so on. Uh, you know, English football in Germany's got a reputation for having uh, amazing atmosphere. Um, and indeed, one of the inquiries we get a lot as a Borussia Dortmund fan club is, you know, can we um you know arrange uh for people to go to watch matches at places like um, Anfield and so on, obviously for Jurgen Klopp connection. But um, um, tell me, um, essentially, who who owned Portsmouth before Mandarich came well, in? You see, that, here's your that, that, that Portsmouth had been through the kind of mill before that we just described, but in a in a, in a less complicated way. I mean, uh, the previous owner that Milan Mandarich bought the club from was a guy called Jim Gregory. And uh, I'm sure some of you would have heard Jim Gregory was a was a football man. I think I think that's what they call people like that. He was a he was a dedicated football man, transformed Queen's Park Rangers in London. In fact, were they one of the first clubs to play on a plastic pitch, as I remember. Hence the Terry Venables book. They they used to play on grass that somebody might remember. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, did a really remarkable job um, at Queen's Park Rangers and then was taken uh, with a heart attack. Felt that he would, uh, he had to sell Queen's Park Rangers because they, they told him he would never be fit enough again to run a football club. And then when he decided that wasn't the case, quite a quite an indomitable old boy was Jim. Um, we were actually struggling once again under the ownership of a guy called John Deacon, which bizarrely was was really bizarre because John Deacon, ex Lord Mayor of Southampton, you can imagine how that went down with the fans, can't you? Oh, Actually wanted to actually wanted to join um, uh, Southampton Football Club, got rejected, and came along to Portsmouth and decided that he was going to wreak revenge on us. And so he then went out on a spending spree and bought all manner of people at all kinds of crazy transfer fees. Alan Borg, God bless him, was his was it was was our manager under him. And uh, we had a bit of a spurt of looking like we were going to be again a good force yeah. to be reckoned with in the second division, the old the, the new Championship then, until that all fell on. Uh, in ra on rather troubled waters. And then he was actually in a situation where he almost had to do a fire sale to Jim Gregory, who then came in, got taken ill again, sadly, had his son involved at the football club who wasn't really a football man. But, of course, he maintained his relationship with Terry Venables. And Terry Venables, of course, then famously bought the club for a pound. And I can tell you that pound never changed hands. Um, and that, <laughs> that, that, that then became a complete and utter fiasco in itself. I was involved about that time. And uh, what year, please? What year? Yeah, Nine, mid nineties, the mid nineties. Um, yeah. So your club is in the second division. Terry Venables buys the club. Um, himself a, a massive football man, but with uh, somewhat dubious business connections, which are quite well known. Yeah, and uh, of course, at that time he was also dual. He had a dual role. He appointed Terry Fenwick as his manager. Terry took ownership of the club, but Terry Venables at that time was Australian national coach. And, uh, bizarre, you know, no, no surprise at all when, it, when half the players in our squad um, had, had Skippy on their T-shirts mm -hmm. 
and spoke with an Australian accent. <laughs> but of course, it was nothing to do with the links between the two clubs. So we, we went through the mill again. Um, that didn't settle too well. There was real talk at that time, because I was involved in it, of another possible ownership. I mean, lots of Pompey fans had then said, look, we've had enough of this. Why can't we find a group of people that can actually do something with this club? We don't care where we play in the league as long as it's our club and not being used by people who've got nothing to do with this club. So it nearly took off at that point. But at that point in time, Milan Mandarik, who's a proper football man, who's done a really good job almost wherever he's been, one of the few people, I guess, too, in football that's actually made a profit out of every club he's bought and sold, which is no mean feat. And he's, he's gone from Sheffield Wednesday now, of course. He's now sub, he's back in Croatia, I think, isn't he? Uh, yes, Slovenia, I think. Yeah. Slovenia, yeah. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, so that was it. So it was actually Jim Gregory who, who then um, had to sell the club onto Milan. And then Milan, of course, famously did the deal with the people that Colin so adequately pointed out to you uh, uh, in the last 10 minutes. One, one question. Sorry, one question I have, chaps. Is um, I'm interested about Michael Eisner, obviously um, the ex um, Disney CEO. Um, what What do you think his motivation um, for getting involved and in the club is? And um, you know, how do you, I guess, how do you go about doing the the due diligence? I suppose to to ensure that you've got the right guy in there um, going forward. Well, well, I think I think Michael Michael was was looking for a football club to buy for some a few years and I think in the end he he decided if he was going to buy a football club it needed to be an English one because that that was as he saw it the kind of the uh, the, the the birthplace of football and the heart of football uh, and 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 my understanding is is he, he actually looked at a number of clubs uh, I think he looked at Reading he looked at Nottingham Forest but in the end it was the the project of Portsmouth that he's he thought was the one which would which would enable him to kind of, you know to fulfill his his idea that he wanted to try and do football differently in that sense and and try and take a what was already a very stable sustainable club and continue to build that and you know I think he's been as good as his word in many respects Ian yeah I I, I sounded that that hand grenade to me now Michael's Michael's a decent man. Um, I'll be, I'll be perfectly truthful that those of us that had saved the club and got the club to a level of success promotion last day of that season, we firmly believed at the time, many of us, that we could take the club on to the next level, which is where it is now, because we had an excellent manager in Paul Cook. We had money in the bank. We'd already pre-sold 14,300 season tickets for the following season. But then, of course, Michael came along with, with his track record, not just in business, but also in sport that he'd been involved in with an impressive array of, uh, of, of people around him. And, uh, it, you know, it's got to be said, and, uh, and I've said this to Michael himself, um, the fans thought, my goodness me, you know, we've, we've, we've actually got the man that actually uh, took Disney World to great heights. Think about what he could do here. Um, and so we, I stood down, most of us stood down, and we accepted that the takeover would take place. Mike, Michael, Michael's got really good intentions for, for his football club. I, I, and also... Uh, interesting enough, from the way you, your club sustain himself, also believes strongly in sustainability. Mm. And if you think about the last few months where football in England, anyway, it's worried to death about its sustainability, Portsmouth Football Club's probably one of the few clubs that hasn't had to worry about that because of his ownership. Mm. No, very true. And just to, just to clarify that, in terms of the ownership structure now, is Michael a hundred percent owner, or, or yes. is there? Um, it, do they do um, the Portsmouth um, Supporters Trust still have a um, a financial or, or own shares in the uh, in the company? No, no, no it's part of the deal that that, that he would have a hundred percent for his company called right. Tornante. Yeah, okay. and I think, I think what 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 Portsmouth have tried to do to maintain that community ethos is there is a there is a a, um, a board that meets sort of every 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 heritage four board. months a heritage board I think they call it that meets every four months which actually has kind of like representatives of the former presidents who are owners of the club and also the trust are represented on that and and it's it's a it, it hasn't got any decision making kind of like authority but what it does do is it it, it is something that is it enables the previous owners, i.e., the supporters, to actually have an input into into the into the debate. Mm, fantastic, and I suppose it brings us nicely on, Ben, to to BVB, and I guess fifteen years ago now. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be fair to say, um, and I was really uh, enjoying listening to Colin and Ian um, explaining the story, and I thought it was really important to kind of go back to the John 
to the Terry Venables days and so on. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, alluded to his, um, you know, his uh, financial dealings at, um, at Tottenham and so on. But we can't take that away from uh, from him being a great football man. I remember him at um, FC Barcelona and so on. And also as an England coach as well um, and Australia and so on. Um, but um, it's very sad. And I think that, you know, it's um, a very bad indictment of... Um, of the way that the game is managed in England at the top level in terms of, um, you know, due diligence and, um, and, and also, you know, allowing uh, people to come in and buy football clubs. Um, but then, you know, um, as our guest last week, um, oh, sorry, two weeks ago, um, Kieran Maguire was saying, um, who, who does the, um, the price of football, um, football is a loss-making business. Um, would you agree with that, um, uh, Ian? Uh, yeah, I, 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 fundamentally it is. I mean, uh, you know, it, I don't think you necessarily have to set up on that basis. I mean, one of the things that we did when we took over at Portsmouth is we actually said that we would never be a loss-making business and we would never go into any debt. I mean, I'm not talking about day-to-day -day debt where your cash flow may be up one minute and down the next. I'm talking about fundamentally that our assets always outweighed our liabilities. Uh, we, ate, we ate what we killed, if you like. Um, and that we would never actually, um, we would never actually sell off any assets or or, or finance any assets um, to, to, to 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 actually basically finance forward-looking business. And we kept to that model strictly. And as I say, when we left the football club, it had one and a half million pound in its bank account, fourteen thousand three hundred ticket holders, a new training ground which it never ever had in its previous history for ten years. And uh, I think that Michael's probably carried on that. Not that he needed a lesson from us, of course, but it was probably one of the attractions. The fact he didn't have to shell out about 30 million quid just to pay off the debtors. And as you said earlier, I'll come to Dortmund in a second, Mark, fear not. Um, uh, but um, as you said earlier, um, they had essentially been uh, in administration twice and uh, crashed out of the Premier League and uh, crashed down to the third tier and had at, some, at one point, I think, about 100 million of debt. Isn't that right? Three hundred, three, three, three consecutive points deductions all the way down uh, yeah. to the level we found ourselves at. Some yeah. people have estimated the, the losses at, at Portsmouth over the period of in excess of four hundred million pounds. Yeah. Over, over a ten-year period, and even at the end of the administration, I can tell you this now because it's probably history and water under the bridge, as it were. There was eighty to ninety million pounds worth of, 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 of basic business that could never be traced anywhere. And, and how can how can one understand this? I mean, uh, Mark's been involved with one of the most uh, uh, pr financially prudent football clubs, um, working in the press office at Arsenal. We talked about Arsene Wenger. We had the SLO, uh, Mark Brindle of uh, Arsenal, on the show a few weeks ago, which was very enjoyable for, for Mark and I. Um, and um, because I, I, I like uh, I like the Arsenal ethic and so on, which uh, which is very solid, uh, similar to Dortmund's ethic. But um, talking about i just want to i just want to ask one question before bringing in dortmund which is likewise has a history now of being very solid in the last 10 years 15 years or so but it wasn't always that way um, when i go down to fratton park which to me is even i think it's 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 it's, it's on a par with anfield in terms of the charm and the, and, and and the kind of uh, you know the friendly friendly atmosphere being in the middle of, of 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 terraced houses and you know it's 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 absolutely lovely i mean the atmosphere down there i really enjoy it but it it does seem very strange to me that a club that you know played for so long 46 seasons in the top tier of football plays in a in a stadium with just 20,000 capacity i mean Surely that's um, the Achilles tendon of, of Portsmouth FC, wouldn't wouldn't you agree? Well, of course, in 1954, that same stadium held 52,817 people in it as a record crowd against Derby. Um, it's a sheer, it's a simple fact. Nobody, but nobody, over the time, even in Milan's time, to be fair to him, um, took on the responsibility of building a new football ground. You know, the the, the fans were lusting for success. Um, success didn't necessarily mean a stadium, and of course that that, that capacity reduced and reduced over a period of time. Um, but it but it but it is even now the biggest challenge that the football club faces, and I think even Michael Eisner and and and, and all of his uh, his assets are looking at the right way to try and develop the football ground. And there's a chance with this virus that just hit us that still may not happen for the next two or three years. Mm. So, so essentially, um, my experience of going to watch them over the last couple of years 
um, has been that, um, you know, most of the games are sold out. And I mean, you know, um, I remember I remember going quite a lot to Oxford United when I studied in Oxford and um, talking to Daryl Eels, the chairman, he supported a, a project that I did, uh, a refugee football tournament called the United Oxford Cup. Um, and um, essentially, I remember asking Daryl, um, who's, 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 who's a big football man himself, um, yeah. and a couple of clubs, um, why didn't they build a, a, a fourth stand at the Kazam? And, um, you know, obviously the, the problems with the owner, with Firos Kazam over the years have been known. I mean, ever since, basically, they moved away from Headington, which are the glory days, essentially, of Oxford United. But um, he said, it's not worth it because we won't be able to fill it. I mean, I suppose he was being a bit cynical. But when I look just up the road to Southampton FC, their St. Mary's Stadium, the new one, has got a capacity of uh, 32,000. Surely that brings in quite a lot more money than uh, than a stadium of just 20,000. I think, I think the thing is, is that Portsmouth have the absolutely the converse problem to Oxford's because I think Portsmouth, if we'd have had a stadium of 30,000, we, we could have built an average attendance of 30,000 quite easily, particularly when we were in the Premier League. But we never had that kind of excess or spare capacity to be able to kind of build that fan base um so i think at the moment you've you've kind of got still i think quite a lot of pent-up demand in in, in yeah. portsmouth and in the greater portsmouth area for for to go and watch the team play and i think in the end i think in the longer term i think that that's that's the potential that michael sees in portsmouth michael eisen sees in portsmouth but in the end, someone somewhere is going to make the committing move to actually build the two new stands we need or the new stadium we need to create that. You know, it's, it's the old field of dreams thing, isn't it? Build it and they'll come. And no one has ever made that committing move at Portsmouth. And, and that's why you know, we're probably now in the third division rather than maybe the championship or the Premier League where, where we could well be. You know, and let's touch on the thing that I'm sure hits all of our hearts. It's the romance of football. It's the atmosphere. It's about the crowd. Famously, Thierry Henry, after mm. coming to Fratton Park with Arsenal and beating us 5 0 on the yeah, day. 6 uh, 1, wasn't it? I think. Oh, trust you to get it in. 5 1. Sorry about that. <laughs> same, same goal difference. Famously, yeah, went exactly. the, famously went down the tunnel to return three minutes later with a Pompey shirt on and ran round the ground. Yeah. It's a chance of the Portsmouth fans sign him up, sign him up, sign him up. Both he and Jose Mourinho, I'll only mention those two names because they're familiar to us as, as we speak at this moment in time, have said probably the best and most football-like stadium they, they ever play football in, in in the UK. And so the challenge has been to find a stadium that can keep that passion, to keep that image, to keep that approach. Goodenson Park's another classic example of that. But the challenge for any owner coming in, any owner coming in should have been, and the first hurdle they should have had to overcome, was to say, well, the club needs a new stadium or an addition to the stadium, and here's how I'm going to finance it. And as, a, as yet, we haven't got to that point. So, so essentially, um, the um, I'm just going to take this as, as read or what Kieran Maguire was saying about um, the uh, about football being a loss making business. It also, however, delivers a very strong cash flow, uh, which which is not to be discounted. Um, you know, in terms of in, uh, for an investor, and, and Mark is a is a is a former financial person himself, so it has he has that experience and talk more authoritatively than I can. But um, essentially, from from a, looking at it from a German perspective, in Germany there's the 50 plus one rule. Um, I'm a club member at Borussia Dortmund, which means that I get to vote in the uh, AGM on a range of issues. Um, and 51% um, 51% of the, of the of the voting rights for the football club are always in the hands of the members. Dortmund has 160,000 members. It's the fourth biggest um, uh, sports club in the world uh, it, by, by, by way of membership. Um, unfortunately, Schalke has a couple more members, but um, that's a word that we generally don't use, the local rivals down the road. But <laughs> for, from a German perspective, it's kind of, um, it's kind of strange um, looking at it because why would you guys say, being being very much football people, why would you say that um, we couldn't have a model like that here in England, where the fans basically own shares or the fans are involved in the in the in the in the decision making in the football club? It doesn't work. There's a very simple answer to that. I think you know, 
the Bundesliga was only formed in 1963, I think. So you're, you're, you're a relatively yep. young league, whereas the, the Football League was founded in 1888. And the football clubs, when they were founded, they were all founded as private limited companies. So, so the English football model from day one has been a private limited company model. So culturally... Well, that is our football model. And so when, when you try to do things like we done did at Portsmouth, when you do things like AFC Wimbledon, FC United of Manchester and so on, what you're doing is, is you're, you are very much swimming against the cultural tide of English football. And in Germany, because your, your league is, is a relatively new one, you you kind of just invented a different model to us so so i th- i think i think that, that that's that, that's the simple answer i, I think, think i think that's too simple an answer though uh, i think the reality of life is that um we were talking about earlier on the here this afternoon um football being the people's sport really wants to find itself now making money at a corporate environment uh, and, and i think the two really don't easily mix i mean when uh, People talked about Manchester United being the pawn, the pawn sandwich brigade, for example. I mean, that Old Trafford is one of those grounds you go to and you think, do you know what, there's about 10% of the noise in here with 70,000 people. There is at Fratton Park with 17,000 people. Depends on what you see in football. The, the problem we've got is simply this, that the culture is, is definitely a strong thing. But the Premier League, once it decided to set itself up the way it is, it's a, it's a, it's a huge financial institution, wants to just see carbon copies of itself and there was no question at all in all the meetings that we had leading up to the ownership of Portsmouth Football Club. We, you, you walked into boardrooms and felt like you maybe have trodden something on the way in because you were supposedly a supporter's own club. You weren't part of the club. You weren't. They were glad to get rid of us uh, from the Premier League for the issues that we caused them. And despite the fact that we came, we came back in a very proud fashion, there is this glass ceiling that exists in English football that will not go away, that basically says, oh, yeah, but you can only really have a fan-owned club until you get to the first division, and then you've got to start preparing yourself for the, for the championship, the Premier League, which, of course, is owned by oil shakes, um, you know, Russian, um, uh, you know, whatever you want to call those, or, or, or actually corporations. And, 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 and until we change that culture, we're not going to change the football and the way it's structured in the UK. No, it's right. It's something that sticks in my throat, particularly. I used to be a uh, one of the small shareholders at Arsenal Football Club. And so even though I didn't have a big influence in, in obviously in the running of the club, etc. For example, like the, the annual AGM, which um, was always something that had to take place, gave us an opportunity to, to air our thoughts and uh, to really sort of grill the guys on the board about the direction of the club and, and how they saw things going forward. Unfortunately, from from my standpoint, that was taken away um, probably 18 months ago when Stan Kroenke um, finally um, got a majority of the shares in the club. And therefore, there were no more share, uh, small shareholders like myself and, and, and also the Arsenal um, Supporters Trust. Um, so it, it is very sad. And, and I think one of the things that, that comes back to sort of what Ben and I have discussed many, many times and the attraction of English supporters going to watch German football is, is exactly that. It gives us something that we, we just don't have in England. And, and, and what you chaps have just described there is, to me, about the Premier League is exactly that. It feels, um, it, it feels like you're going to a, like a corporate football game to a certain degree. Don't get me wrong. There are places in the UK that have great atmospheres and you can still have a great time, etc. But it does have a real sort of corporate feel to it. Whenever I've been to football in the Bundesliga, um, and even of a, a, a club the size of, of Borussia Dortmund, which is as, pretty much as big as you can get, it doesn't have that feel at all. Um, you know, it, it feels like there's that community um, feel there, but it's on a large scale. Um, I must, I'm, I'm sorry, if I could just interject, there's one story mm. that I must tell you that reflects the total scenario. Mm, please. We played, a, we played a friendly game against um, a, a premier side uh, not too far away from us. Um, a season or two ago, or the, the, the last season that I was actually there, I think. And uh, we, we were engaged in conversation with their chairman about why, why it wasn't that they were expanding the capacity of their ground to cope with um, a larger audience, if you like to put it that way. And it finally boiled down to him making this complete statement. He said, well, of course, at the end of the day, in the Premier League fans don't count. And I thought that was particularly ridiculous because here he is sitting at the boardroom of a supporter's own football club. 
But it was so typical. It was an honest statement that he made, but it was an honest statement. We, you know, we can't really be bothered to make the ground any bigger because, quite frankly, our money doesn't come from the fans. It comes from the Premier League. And I thought, my God, you've only just joined that club and yet already you've taken part of it and you'll, you'll, you'll go far within that Premier League whereas I probably wouldn't have got invited back into the boardroom with the attitude I had about it. And until we, until we seriously, Arsenal, very well, very well run club. But the truth of the matter is we, there will never be, in my opinion, sadly, another another club that has successfully taken over and operated for a period of time as Portsmouth Football Club. And I say that with a heavy heart, Colin. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I, I think yeah, Portsmouth was, a, for a club the size of Portsmouth, for it to have been community owned and successfully community owned, it it, it, it will be a one-off. I'm convinced. I, I, you know, we've had an opportunity with Bolton Wanderers that never came to anything. I think I think you know the bottom line is 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 that there is really unless you've got kind of serious money, you you can't compete as a big club in 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 English football, and that 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 works against the supporter own model. The truth of the matter is it starts from the top. The attitude starts from the top. You go through most Premier League boardrooms, not them all and not everybody, and you'll find people there that couldn't tell you which end of the goal that they're looking at. They're just there for the status. If, if a supporter dare find himself through by taking the wrong turn and end outside the boardroom doors, he's moved out of the ground quicker than somebody that's actually looking to shoot somebody. You know, and that Premier League chairman's response is something that I found typical throughout the game. It is a club. It is a closed club and supporters now are well, basically their clients and their clients that have a net worth put on their head about how much they can spend in the ground every day. And outside of supporters clubs and, the, and, and clubs at our level, that's why community football is so important. They don't and never will get a say in the running of English football. And that was episode eight, our chat with the former um, chairman of Portsmouth FC and his colleague, both currently with seventh tier, Gosport Borough, who are working to rebuild that club, having um, taken over Portsmouth FC at a time when the club was bankrupt and had been basically um, massively undermined by a succession of um, of uh, business transactions which had left the club in a very bad state and bad owners. Mark also, uh, we chatted after the show about our own experiences, mine of being a former referee in Dortmund's football department and also a um, having voting rights, being a member and a shareholder and my sense of being able to participate in the life of the club in, in all those respects. And Mark, as a former shareholder, um, having been forced to sell his shares when Alicia Usmanov, the billionaire, took over the club, and the sense of um, now being more of a corporate, of a sort of a client, if you like, like you might be of a supermarket, rather than actually having a sense of being able to be part of the um, life of, of, of Arsenal Football Club. I think that's a bit of a sad indictment, basically, of the state of English football, that the clubs are um, uh, commercially owned in that respect. Um, but on the same note, the conversation was very positive um, in the sense of the fact that the fan takeover uh, was so successful at Portsmouth FC and they were able to transfer it um, and it now has a great future ahead of it. We hope you enjoyed the show. And the uh, social media tags that were given were uh, on Twitter, um, at GosportBFC for Colin and Ian, and um, Mark can be found at uh, marketsportsline.co.uk, and I can be found at the Facebook. See you next week.